so where do we begin? I can finally see you're as fucked up as me, so how do we win? Yeah, I'm sick of losing soulmates, won't be alone again. I can finally see you're as fucked up as me, so how do we win? Chapter 8. Sokka? You look half dead. He can spot the exact moment Katara regrets her phrasing. Morning, Sokka replies, sluggish and vaguely disconnected from reality. Did you sleep? Nope. Cheer up, Toph calls from the breakfast table. We've got sausages. What kind? Komodo duck with fruit mixed in. Komodo duck's not the same thing as turtle duck. Sokka considers it for a second, and then his shoulders sag. Okay, I guess I'll take one. It's a silent breakfast. Even the juicy fruit scattered through the sausages can't amuse Sokka today. Katara and Aang shoot him looks of concern, but they don't comment on the circles under his eyes. Zuko, Katara says at last when they finish. Is there anything else you want us to know? Anything you need to say? Sokka opens the notebook up a few seconds before Zuko touches his hand. Even when the contact does come, Zuko presses the pen down and then doesn't move it for several heartbeats more. Aang, please continue your firebending training. There's joy in firebending, and I think one day you'll come to see it. Aang replies with an earnest nod. I'll keep following your teachings, I promise. And try to see a proper version of love amongst the dragons, not the Ember Island players. They're overrated. Sokka chuckles against his will. I have no right to ask this, but I ask you all for your mercy towards the people of the Fire Nation. Yes, you need to seek justice for many injuries, and there are individuals in power you will want to remove. Still, I have hope for my people as a whole, especially those who played no willing part in this war, and I beg you to allow them a chance at redemption. Katara opens her mouth like she's about to protest, but then she closes it and looks to Aang. He nods again. I promise that, too. And if I could ask for something personal? Of course, Sokka whispers. If you win, he says, please put my mother's tablet back in the family shrine where it belongs, and take care of the garden. What garden? Toph asks. In the palace, Sokka answers, suddenly hoarse, with the baby turtle ducks. Judy greets them at the door of their house. Please leave your weapons behind. They do not belong in a sacred space. Water's not a weapon, Katara snaps. If you want to kick rock out of your sacred space, Toph adds, that's your job, not mine. Same for air, Aang says. Fine. Sokka wasn't going to bring a sword, but he goes ahead and leaves Boomerang in the house too, feeling naked as he does. Still, he keeps his notebook and pen, tucked safely in his belt. Stripped of half his power, Sokka rejoins the group, and they proceed towards the palace. While most spiritual rituals are carried out in the Earth Temple, the head sage believes a different location is required for your case. She informs them as they walk. He had prepared a sacred place below ground, in the catacombs of old Ba Sing Se. Sokka shivers, but he supposes the catacombs of a buried city are as fitting a place as any for dealings with ghosts. Good morning, 
Now Judy leaves, and a Daily agent greets them, taking her place. I will bring you to the head sage. Katara, Aang, and Sokka exchange glances. Then they turn to Toph, who nods. The agent doesn't attack them or try brainwashing them. Instead, he does exactly what he said he would, bending a tunnel down into a long, abandoned courtyard, filled with nothing but bright green crystals. They're the same ones from the labyrinth, Sokka realizes, and the Earth King also had them in his weirdly hot library fireplace. The head sage, the agent announces, as a hole opens in a nearby wall. A short, white-haired man emerges from the hole. He's dressed in bright yellow robes, adorned with sashes and streamers and plenty of gemstones soon on in seemingly random places. He reminds Sokka of Bumi, which probably shouldn't be as reassuring as it is. Greetings. His voice creaks with age, yet there's still a sprightly enthusiasm to it. I am glad to meet you all. However, I need only Mr. Sokka and Prince Zuko to join me through here. The Daily Agent doesn't react. From everyone else, there's a lot of hemming and hawing, because clearly their ghost is named Lee, and they haven't had any dealings with the Prince Zuko in months. Why would anyone even think that? Then the sage fixes his emerald green eyes on them, and they give up on pretense. Okay, Sokka steps forward. Let's do this. He follows the sage into the hole and down yet another tunnel. The wall closes back up behind him, as Sokka steps into a new cave, well lit by jagged green crystals. Nearby, there's a stone table laden with equipment, a chalice, two shallow bowls, a hook sword, a broadsword, a machete. You know, your standard array of religious instruments. Zuko places one hand on his shoulder in warning. But yeah, Sokka's already noticed the issue. Oh, don't worry about those, the sage says, turning away as he pours liquid from the chalice into one of the bowls. They aren't for you. Please sit. Sokka's about to say there's nowhere to sit when he stamps his foot and raises a smooth stone chair. So Sokka sits, but he still cranes his neck, squinting at the liquid the sage is pouring. It's pretty and pearly and far too familiar. Is that cactus juice? The sage turns around, pours the whole bowlful down his throat, and then smiles blissfully. I see you are acquainted. It is a useful aid for devoted truth seekers. Useful? That's one word for it. A sip before every ritual, that's my habit. And for a matter as special as this one, a whole bowl. Would you like to try some? I've got a backup dish right here. Sokka opens his mouth to answer, and then realizes he doesn't know his answer. He should be clear-headed for this, to the extent that someone who hasn't slept can be. But it's also his last chance to see Zuko. Sokka can't guess whether seeing him would make this easier or harder. No, I don't think so. Zuko clasps one hand and squeezes it. It's reassuring. I know we said this was just a normal exorcism, Sokka says, before he can stop himself. But is there any way when we kick Zuko out that we could kick him back? The sage's smile shifts to a look of puzzlement. I mean, is this a one-way road? Sokka continues, painfully uncertain. Or are there any ghosts who've, um, come back to life? The sage finishes. Sokka nods grateful. I just... I have to ask. For completeness. No, he says not unkindly. Ghosts can only linger with us or pass on to what comes next. Oh. Sokka knew that. Obviously he knew that. He doesn't know why he asked. This is still Zuko, enemy prince, 
the guy who attacked his village. Sokka shouldn't be entertaining this possibility in the first place. Why? Sokka blurts, thinking of turtle ducks. Swaying slightly, the sage sets down the bowl and bends a seat for himself. Imagine a ghost as having fallen into a rut in the earth. The circumstances of their deaths and the lack of respect paid thereafter have placed them in a hole, and gravity drags them down. Some can leap out onto the ground with only a little help, with a belated funeral, perhaps. Some are too deeply entrenched, say by their attachment to some old goal. They must be freed of that link, or else given a push upward by an exorcist. Cool, Sokka says, though that really sounds like a pile of mumbo-jumbo. But why? Why does that prevent them from returning to life? If reaching death requires them to climb to the level of the ground, reaching their old life would require an ascension into the stars, and that would need willpower. Zuko's got willpower, Sokka interjects, suddenly electric with hope. And an impossible strength of the soul, he finishes. Strength no soul possesses. Even if a ghost was granted the cosmic energy of all mortals and all spirits put together, they would fall back to the ground. They would fall into the next world, the home that is rightfully theirs. That too sounds like vague and doubtful gibberish, but something inside Sokka deflates. The sage senses it. If you feel guilt over his death, he says with a mild frown, you may be comforted to know souls might persist after passing on. The water sages teach that the souls of the dead can be passed in part to their namesakes. Many of my fellow sages in the Earth Temple say everyone is reincarnated, like the Avatar. And for my part, I believe there is a shadow world we all reach, a place of rest where we might be reunited with those we loved in life. Sokka nods. Could you give me a second? Acquiescing, the sage busies himself with his tools again. Sokka opens his notebook and writes a message of his own. If our souls wind up in the same place, would you do me a favor and chase me down again? Just to say hi. Yes, will you do the same for me? Of course, he replies. Then he tucks the notebook back into his belt and folds his hands one over the other. The sage won't be able to see how his fingers are curling twining with Zuko's. Incredible, the sage says, raising a gleaming silver knife with a serrated edge. The invisible strings that bind us all. I cannot tell what the link that ties you to this prince looks like, not without several more bullfuls, but at least the cactus juice lets me see where it is. He steps forward, lifting the knife. Sometimes, he adds, that's all you need. The blade slices through the air, several inches away from Sokka's skin. Nothing happens. Zuko's still holding Sokka's hand, no less present and real than before. That didn't work. The sage lets out an irritated hum. But surely... No, perhaps we do need something stronger. He takes up a broadsword, shifting it from hand to hand and staring at an empty space by Sokka's wrist. Then he abruptly slashes down again, and Sokka gasps, curling into himself as pain stabs in his gut. Zuko's fingers disappear, and Sokka's hand clenches down around empty air, but there's a pressure on top of his other hand a few seconds later. Sokka lets out a long breath he hadn't meant to hold. He isn't gone, the sage intones. His brilliant green eyes gone wide. He begins to pace rapidly around Sokka's chair, speaking more to himself than to him. A bizarre case. His soul should be able to make the jump. After all, the boy's a firebender. 
and these crystals hold enough fire to spark his soul to action. What? Sokka interjects. How do crystals hold fire? You think fire and earth are separate? He gestures wildly at the glowing green crystals all around them. You can see for yourself, these rocks contain light. When you feed them to a fire, it will burn hotter and brighter. Firebenders should react the same. You... you feed rocks to firebenders? The sage doesn't answer. Instead, he dives back towards his table, sifting through the gear, chucking objects over his shoulder until he arrives at his target. A pair of scissors. A pair of delicate, gilded scissors, like the ones Sokka had puzzled over in their frou-frou ba-sing-se bathroom, until his highness, Prince Zuko, informed him they were for trimming nails. If this cannot part you, the sage declares, no exorcism will. Snip. Sokka grits his teeth and whines as his heart wrenches out of place. Truly, it seems like his whole heart's bleeding pain, and he doubles over, doing his best to breathe in and out, and in, until the spots stop dancing in front of his eyes. For one instant, Zuko's hand crushes his. The contact disappears. Something rumbles at the edges of Sokka's awareness. His head's pounding, and the world's pounding, and he can't make sense of any of it. A true oddity, the sage murmurs, barely audible, as if there's some pull to stay besides gravity or an old goal, some separate attraction. Then the sage drops the scissors and stumbles back, falling against his table. As knives and weapons clatter to the ground, Sokka clutches his head, begging everything to stop. I see a world of thunder, the sage says, voice suddenly transformed into an echoing drone. To paint the darkness blue. Sokka's head shoots up, because even in his sleep-deprived, pain-drunk state, he can tell that makes no sense, and the sage is advancing with panicked eyes, both hands wrapped around a machete. Wait a minute, Sokka says, jumping to his feet. You can't! With a shout of exertion, the sage whips the machete through the air, still safely away from Sokka's skin. This time, there's no pain at all. You are rid of the parasite, he declares, raising his voice. Prince Zuko of the Fire Nation is gone forever. Nothing happens. There's no contact anymore. With a crash, someone bends a hole in the cave wall. It took you long enough says a sharp, high voice. Sokka twists around. Dai Li, orders Princess Azula of the Fire Nation. Arrest them both. As the agents flanking her leap forward, the world erupts in dust. The ground shakes as a full-blown earthbending duel breaks out. Sokka just hurls himself towards the place where the weapons fell and grabs the first thing he finds, a hook sword. He can work with that. And then stumbles blindly towards the tunnel. It's still there, and he scrambles out as the cave explodes behind him. Only to run into an even larger bending duel. He spots Katara and Aang at the center of the chaos, hurling the contents of a river at their enemies. The girl in pink, Tai Li, Zuko told him, is cartwheeling through the mess, chi blocking Dai Li agents. And that's weird. If Azula's got the Dai Li on her side, but not as weird as the fact that some of the Dai Li agents are attacking each other. Sokka runs away from the tunnel towards Toph, who's been backed into a corner by ten Dai Li agents at once. But an imposing man in long green robes suddenly materializes in his path. Dai Li, he booms. The Earth King has invited you to Lake Laogai. The fighting instantly stops. Dai Li, Azula says, 
having emerged from the tunnel behind them. The princess summons you to the seashore. Oh. Oh, no. The fighting instantly resumes, agent against agent, and a flash of red catches Sokka's attention. My. She hurls two knives at him, and he dodges one and bats the other away with his sword. It flies off course, striking a crystal and throwing off green sparks. And probably, the sparks grow into a massive green fireball that throws them both to their feet. At the impact, the notebook flies out of his belt and it catches fire. Though Sokka nearly reaches for it, it's a lost cause. He gives it up. Instead, he pushes himself to his feet, despite the dizziness. Clinging to his sword for dear life, he scans the battlefield and finds Aang glowing, rising from a cocoon of green crystal into the air. Then he spots Azula, and a chaotic battle suddenly turns simple. She's slow at making lightning. Zuko had said she was, compared to Ozai, but Sokka didn't understand until now, when the whole world freezes around him. There's nothing but Azula, sweeping one hand in a crackling circle edged with blue. Her eyes are fixed on Aang. Aang's in the Avatar state at his most vulnerable. He's with Toph and Katara, but they're all a world away on the other side of the battlefield, with a swarm of Dai Li agents between them and Sokka. He swivels his head and scans Azula's line of attack. Tai Li's the closest, but she won't get in her princess's way. The next closest is a Dai Li agent. Sokka can't guess if he's still loyal or if Azula's managed to brainwash him. Either way, he won't realize in time. The third closest person is Sokka. His choice is crystal clear. He hurls himself into the lightning's path, sword extended in case the metal can somehow reroute the circuit. Azula brings her two hands together and a flash of light. At that instant, something smacks Sokka in the back, and he trips and falls face first to the ground, flailing. A bolt of blue light arcs right over him, not even grazing his skin. The thunder booms overhead, and Sokka clenches his eyes shut on instinct. Before he can open them again, all his limbs go buzzy and limp, chi effectively blocked by Tai Li. The sword falls right out of his hand. Then there's a grand stomp, and rock closes over his head, and someone approaches with footsteps that shake the ground. The last thing Sokka does is laugh. A crystal clear, choice, and a crystal-covered battlefield. It's not a half-bad pun. Sokka wakes, briefly in a shadow world. Though sound and breeze and colors blur soft around him, a single voice stands out, a pure sliver of light in the darkness. Sokka? Mom calls. He hears her so clearly, it's hard to tell the present from the memory. See the lights, Mom says in his memories, and he remembers turning his face to the sky in wonder, forgetting the cold and the dark and the creeping winter sadness. He'd gaze up at swirling ribbons of color, at the brilliant pink and purple and green dancing through the night sky. In his memories, as Mom pointed up at the aurora, the other children of the village clustered around them, Katara's small mitten clutched in Sokka's. He can still feel the echo of a hand wrapped around his like a dream he hasn't quite woken from. Those are souls, Mom told them, as they gazed upward at the lights. Not angry ones. They're gentle children who left us, who've come back to play their games in the sky. As Sokka slips into shadow, he holds no doubt towards the story. He hopes it's true. It has to be. Yes, he and Zuko might be men, not children. They've tried so hard to be men. They've given their lives to the effort. But at least they might meet again, if only as rainbow ribbons, forever crossing the night sky.